pray with me again, please? Father, I really ask for Your grace in a desperate way this morning. May You cause my heart to be fearfully bold and to unfold texts in Your precious Scripture this morning clearly and for what they mean. And may You give us grace to hear, to hear ultimately joyfully, to understand contours of Your nature more fully than we ever have. Father, Your plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world is glorious. We will spend all eternity learning of it. And so this morning, may this be just one aspect. To the glory of Your Son, Jesus, and His great mercy and Your love for our souls, we pray. Amen. Last week in this series on our journey through biblical redemption, biblical history, we saw the fall of mankind. We saw that God said to Adam and to Eve, eat freely of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. And we saw last week that when they ate, it wasn't just about Adam and Eve. All of us became culpable in it. Through Adam, we all sinned. And through Adam, condemnation came. We saw God's response. There's consequence. Punishment for Eve, for Adam, for the earth, for the universe that's physical that He created. We saw this mercy clothed them, and He prophesied about Christ coming. But, this morning back to that consequence for sin in all humanity, we all who have fallen in Adam, we saw or we will see that that promise of death if you eat, ultimately as biblical revelation unfolds, it becomes very clear that that death is an eternal punishment. It is an eternal state of having God's holiness and righteous wrath hang over our heads. That's our topic this morning. The doctrine of hell. Welcome as a visitor now. We didn't advertise this thing out there. But so that, I know I jokingly say that, but, but here, because I'm very aware. Wow, Sunday morning? This is it? That's your sermon? Yeah, and I, there's two basic reasons why. The first is this it's everywhere in Scripture. God's judgment, eternal wrath, is ubiquitous, it's all over. And as a pastor, I'm accountable 
to preach the whole counsel of God. Not just the parts that are light and feel good. Matthew 10.28, Jesus said it this way, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 25.46 And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So first, I do not see how a pastor can neglect this theme, this truth in Scripture with a pure conscience. The second reason why is because this subject of God's wrath, hell, final and eternal condemnation, reveals something about God's character which is the means for us loving Him more. I know, you're probably balking at that statement right now. Let me say this. To the extent that hearing the truth in Scripture about God's judgment and eternal judgment and wrath, righteous anger, indignation poured out Forever. To, the, to the extent that that causes our hearts not to love God or to love Him less, it may be saying that the God we love is more a figment of our imagination than the God of the Bible who has revealed Himself. If we are to go deeper and deeper in love with the Holy God of Scripture, we have to know Him. How are we going to really deeply sing songs of His mercy upon us if we don't know of His holy, terrible wrath from which He delivered us? This is a sobering subject. And so to go about it this morning, we want to take some steps. Just go step by step about God who is He from eternity past that leads up to this future judgment day, the second coming of Jesus. And so I have four steps. The first two are going to be very quick because in this series, over the previous weeks, I have laid them out. And so I'm just going to, in sum remind you again of the first two steps. First is this. God's essence, who He is eternally without beginning and end, is 
The personification of love, delight, joy, contentment, unbounded in Himself as the Father has been delighting in the face of His perfections in the Son for all eternity. And the Son's joy being gleaned from the face, the person of the Father for all eternity. And that spirit of love, delight, community is so perfect that He has stood forth as the third person of the Trinity for all eternity. In other words, everything God is and every move that He makes, everything that He does leads Him to expand, uphold, protect that essence called His glory. That's why when you open the Bible, all over the place you see, for His name's sake, for my name's sake I act. For my glory I do this. I do that. Ultimately, in the long run, everything God does is for the upholding of His eternal essence. Say it this way. The Bible says it all over. Upholding His glory. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 48. I'll just give you one text. Verses 9 and 11. For my name's sake, I defer my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Israel, God held back. He was patient. His wrath Why? He said, for my name's sake. Ultimately, that's always what's going on. How will my name be profaned is a rhetorical question. In other words, the statement is clear what God is saying through Isaiah. He's saying, I will not act, I cannot move without the ultimate purpose of upholding my name or to say it like he says here negatively, I cannot act in any way that would defame my glory. My name. Harm my reputation. And so as we have seen in the previous weeks, the sinlessness of God at its very core consists mainly in His love for Himself. In the Son. In the Son. In the Father. If He were to act from any other ultimate motive, He would deny Himself and be sinful. So step one, is that God's eternal essence is always moving and acting in such a way that He is upholding His eternal glory. Step two. This God who created humanity in His own image, not to get something from them, but to overflow with His eternal joy in them, to them, finds and delights in everyone who delights in the joy that he himself has in himself. Let me just give you a few scriptures and we'll move on to step three. For instance, Psalm 147, verses 10 to 11, God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights 
in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. Psalm 33, 17-19. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. Listen to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul lays out here God's ultimate goal after Christ comes back and the final judgment. He says this is what he's after. Quote, that the saints would to be glorified. God will come back in Christ. Christ will come back to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Not only is God's greatest joy eternally before creation, why He is infinitely needless. His needs have eternally been met in the satisfaction He has in Himself, in His eternal glory. But He created in order to expand that outward. And we see it here at the second coming. All those whom He's called to Himself, who have come to faith in Christ. He says, here's my goal, that you would glorify Me by just constantly now, forever and sinlessly, we cannot imagine be saying, wow! I marvel at how good and joyful and fulfilling you are to me. Two more. Jeremiah 32.41 God says, and I will rejoice. He does rejoice. Listen, over what? I will rejoice over them Wow, I rejoice to do them good with all of my heart and all of my soul. Who? Those who let Him. One more, Isaiah 64.4. God is the God who works on behalf of others. He works on behalf of those who put their hope in Him, who wait for Him. Why? Because He loves to expand His glory, His joy. He loves to see it received and trusted in. Step three. Because what we just did, you've already heard that. You've been in here the last few weeks. Step three. Since God uses His great power to benefit all who delight in Him, then He must direct the full force of that power against all who say, No! Thank you! You're not that wonderful! That's what happened in the garden. Against those who just... I do not feel the need to depend on you. I'll go my own way. The point is this. God fully and infinitely honors His name by mercy to those who delight in Him. And He fully and infinitely honors His name, upholds His glory by wrath. Eternal hell for those who unrepentantly Go on dishonoring and refusing to trust 
and see and delight in the eternal joy that God Himself is. See, if this eternal God, who is the essence of perfection and beauty and joy and holiness, were to create human beings made in His image, they have a mind, they have an intellect, and they have a will like He does. And one of those human beings, or four, or four billion, were to say by their, and from their heart, and by their actions, you are not really what you think you are. You are not really the essence of perfection and beauty and joy. And if God just sweep that under the rug, let's kind of pretend that didn't happen. Let's not take that so seriously He would be diminishing His very essence. His glory. See, the flip side of God loving and delighting in His eternal person in the Son, in the Son, in the person of the Father, personified in the Spirit, and then creating to expand it. Enjoy me! The flip side of that is that when sin arises, when in the heart there is this radical, utter corruption of darkness towards this wonderful God, He is also upholding His glory by opposing them. If He did not, He would belittle His glory. Let me see, if God did not enact perfect justice to sin, when you wake up tomorrow, any of us who wake up as prayers, find ourselves in Christ, you, you think, I have that experience. I'm born again. I know that happened to me. I see that tomorrow you'll wonder. I know this is hypothetical. But you'll wonder, wow, your glory doesn't seem as big today because it wouldn't be as big if He let sin go. Let, let me give a silly illustration. Picture the essence of God's perfections, beauty, glory, eternal personification of joy as the air inside of a balloon. Every time God would sweep sin under the rug and not deal with it in the way that His glory would dictate, air would come out of that balloon. And the sad thing is, those of us who say, well, what's wrong with that? Because the F, you know what it is to be saved? Saved from wrath and to what? To enjoy Him forever. For God to uphold and protect His glory by mercy and by wrath is to protect the object of your hope for any eternal joy, which is Himself. When we say God must first be for Himself so that He could actually, truly, be really loving to us, that's what we mean. In other words, God's love, biblical, loving the creature salvifically in Christ now, God's 
love and hell and His wrath are simply two ways in which God makes it clear that He does and always will fully honor His name, His glory. Hell, eternal, unending punishment under God's very personal wrath is the correct way for Him to uphold His glory. Before us now, death, God's mercy is present everywhere. And His patience is all over the place. A billion, two billion, how many people will be watching the Super Bowl today? And we can know that, wow, there's like a couple billion of us looking here at this football game. And God's mercy is the only reason any of us are breathing and have eyes to see in His patience. Listen, He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good. Yeah, He does right now. And He sends His rain on the just and the unjust farmer. Listen to how Paul said this in Romans chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. Paul said, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? Stop. That you breathe or farmer that it rained and you're going to have a crop? That your retirement fund's doing well? That your children are alive? Do you presume on His kindness and His patience? Not knowing that the reason His kindness and patience is here, as He says, listen to it, is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's patience right now on this planet is everywhere. And of those billions, let's not be one watching the Super Bowl today, millions and millions of them are misinterpreting the reason they're breathing, the reason they own a home and have kids, the reason tragedy hasn't struck this week. They are misinterpreting it. And by so doing, they are storing For a day that's coming. Because death will then mark the end of God's patience. Hebrews 9.27, we know it. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
I'm going to turn to Romans 12.19. You may look at that with me. I want to concentrate on this verse for at least a few minutes. The Apostle Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, notice here, that word wrath is defined in this verse as God's vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. And so here, vengeance of God is connected to something that deserves vengeance. Vengeance is a justice term, the way it's used here. Not unjust vengeance, just vengeance. Then, he says what? I will repay. And so God's wrath here is treated as a a repayment for what someone has done. Now, let's go back to wrath. We'll come back to that in a minute. The word wrath there in your English translation is the Greek word orge. When it's used of human beings, it means like wrath. You know wrath. You lose it on the freeway. Lose it with a spouse. You know how your anger can just boil. That's the basic meaning any good Greek dictionary tell you orge means anger, wrath, indignation. And so, so at least now, chapter 12, verse 19, we got what? Putting these three words together. Wrath is God's settled anger towards sin that expresses itself in repayment, which is a just or an appropriate vengeance. On the guilty sinner. Now, just briefly, listen to how Paul said in Romans 8, I mean, excuse me, Romans chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, For those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, there's two words there. The first one, wrath, is the word orge. Then there's this other word, this other Greek word. Paul's trying to reach for language. Thumos, translated fury. Now briefly, these two words, wrath and fury, throughout the Bible, Old Testament included, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, are put together over a hundred times like they are here, wrath and fury. And so, I want to turn to A.T. Robertson, Greek New Testament scholar from about a hundred years ago, and listen to what he says about these two terms, wrath and fury, orge and thumos. He says, quote, God's anger, that is the word thumos, is His vehement fury, or boiling rage. His wrath, orge, is His settled indignation, or His settled anger. He goes on. In God's anger, the emphasis falls on the emotional, boiling intensity of it. And in God's wrath, 
the emphasis falls on the controlled, settled, considered direction and focus of its application. Now, Robertson will go on to say, he's not saying, well, there's a big distinction between these two words like Paul uses here in Romans 2. Wrath, fury. He's reaching. They're both describing the same mountain. Because God's wrath, righteous, God is not a robot. Joy is an emotion. A robots don't feel it. God is infinitely and eternally joyful. And He knows in that joy and at the same time of that joy to be boiling with anger. But His anger is never out of control. It's never sinful, in other words. We know how to be angry. And we know how to be sinfully angry and out of control and unbalanced. God's isn't. And neither is His settled wrath void of fury. It is fury perfectly channeled where it justly ought to go. So I just want I'm going to pause for a moment. Most of my Christian life over 25 years, people that even got close to just dealing with such hard tech, somehow we want to try to say, well, yeah, God's real personal and loving us, but we try to not be honest with text and say it like this, God created hell for the devil and his angels. He's like, he didn't know that human beings are going to be created. And it's kind of like, you send yourself there, God doesn't. You just can't get away with that biblically. Eternal punishment. God's wrath is very personal. It reminds me of this story I hear R.C. Sproul preacher, theologian. You can hear him on the radio Monday to Friday, 12 noon, 99.5 FM. He didn't pay me for that. And he talks about the time where he's on a college campus. He's going to lecture and like, and this is great. He's not putting this guy down for doing it, walking up there with a track and saying, have you been saved? That's good. But R.C. just decided that day to ask him the question, Saved from what? I think a lot of Christians would really balk on how to even answer that. The ultimate biblical answer is that we're saved from God. From His wrath. It's not impersonal. Back to Romans 12.19. Repay and vengeance there. Make it clear that God's wrath is a response to sin. Law-breaking. God's law. In other words, it's not on the innocent. No innocent people will ever be under or experience God's wrath. And because God is so perfect and He is meticulously just, that repayment will be perfectly suitable justice and vengeance. It won't be a smidgen too much 
And it won't be a smidgen too little. And thus, when that day comes, in the righteous revelation of His justice poured out in wrath, that will be an unending, eternal state and condition. Now, most of us have a hard time with that. Well, probably, hopefully all of us. As much as me, I remember, especially as a little child, I think the Word of God has helped me understand, oh, God is my joy. And it's not like this for me anymore. But I remember growing up as a little child and thinking about eternity in heaven. And even eternity in heaven was like, oh, it's just too long floating on a cloud. Because the finite, that's us, can never comprehend and grab our minds around the infinite. And so we struggle with unending forever and something in us is tending to say that might be a little too much. Maybe that's not just. Let me start with a human analogy about justice. We live here in the state of California. The state is going to represent God here. The glory of the state is to the extent the glory uphold, the state of California upholds its glory, meaning its laws. We have laws. What? Laws are supposed to be made, and for the most part they are, thinking about the good of the whole. How can we make laws that say we want to protect each individual citizen to have freedom to pursue their own happiness? And so we figure, you know what? If someone walks up on the street and hits someone in the head with a baseball bat for no good reason whatsoever, we want to outlaw that. We don't like to live in a place. We want to be free to walk down the street. So we make laws against that. And on and on. If the state of California were to make these 3,468 laws, and when they are broken by self-centered, wicked, evil, other individuals in the state, and the state says, ah, sweep it under the rug, let bygones be bygones, we would be up in arms in protest, saying the state doesn't love us, the victims. The glory of the state would diminish because the state is meant to make laws and then when they are broken by lawbreakers, to go apprehend them, to prosecute them, and here's the key, give them justice. Take away from them an equivalent amount of happiness that they have deprived or stolen from the other in their lawbreaking. Example. Downtown Los Angeles, lots of business. Big, tall buildings. We know as a whole, people need to come and to go. Carriers are coming and go. All day long, there are meters. And they say, you can park here at this space and in this meter for 20 minutes and that's it. Because that gives other people a chance. You break the law, they don't give you the death penalty. That would be unjust. But you have deprived from others a particular amount of their pursuit of happiness. So the fine is, I don't know, I'm probably way off, 30 bucks, 60, I don't know. Okay. You park in a handicapped place. When you don't have a handicapped sign, you're not handicapped. 
It could be, I don't know, what is it, a thousand bucks now? It ought to be. You're stealing, what is it? 300. 300. Ronnie parks at handicapped places. <laughs> because it goes up. They, justice is trying to find a way. What is equivalent to the crime? Do you want to match the enormity of the punishment, the deprivation of happiness, to the severity of the crime? And so you move on to burglary. If someone burgled your house, they caught them, prosecuted them, and, and just said, okay, here's your fine, 30 bucks. Oh boy, you're going you're gonna to do everything you possibly can to make this known because the state is not loving you. The state is not upholding its glory. So there's burglary, there's assault, all the way up to murder. They burgle your house, you come, it's gone. It's unjust to put them to death. Because that's way too extreme amount of deprivation to that burglar for the deprivation they have caused you in their crime. But if we take murder, and this happens, and a murderer doesn't get death, but not only that, because a parole gets out after ten years, people who have this justice thing within us which we're born with know something is wrong with the glory of the state. And so, in other words, to maintain the credibility and the goodness of the state, the state of California, the government must match the severity of the punishment with the enormity of the crime. Now, that brings me to step four. We have all sinned in the greatest possible way against God. Unbelief, as we saw last week in the fall, at its core, isn't just, you can't separate disobedience from trust, delight, finding my satisfaction. You have the words of life. With God, you can't separate it. Sin at its core is unbelief. Unbelief at its core is spurning the trustworthiness of God. It is saying, I don't trust you to meet my needs. Don't trust you to fill my very core of my being with true happiness. Your promise, eat freely. I'm here for you, Adam and Eve. I don't believe it. is infinitely enormous. Think about it for a moment. The greatest insult you could do to another person is to say, when you know them and you have a background, I don't trust you. I remember a pastor one time in a prison, visiting, interviewing an, uh, uh, an inmate, and he was a very violent inmate, and he asked him all kinds of questions about what if someone you know in here, you know, came and hit you, and you know, yeah, da, da, da. and then what if someone started cussing you out, and well, you know, I mean, you know. and then he said, what if someone looked at you in the eye and said to this violent criminal, I don't trust you. That guy became vehement. He said, I would break every bone in his body. 
depending on the object that you say that to, in other words, to, who is the one that is being offended? Say it this way. If so I'm walking down the street and there's a stranger I never met walks by and says, hey, I don't trust you, it's not that massive of a crime to my soul. They don't know me. If my wife looks at me in the eye and says to me, after all the years we have been together, I don't trust you. It's over. Probably. If a good friend, after years, looks you in the eye and says, I don't trust you, we're all finite. Take the infinite God without bounds, eternally, omnipotently, gloriously trustworthy. No other being compares and a finite being us say and mean as we do. I don't trust that is an infinite crime. Those who persist unrepentantly in the independence, sinful unbelief, independence of Adam are guilty of a sin of the greatest possible enormity. Our depravity as human beings is total. What do I mean? Joe, you did not just say that we have all in this life, in this temporal life, done the amount of equal evil that Adolf Hitler and Eichmann and those guys did. Are you saying that? No. It's not what, when the church for the last few thousand years has talked about the total deprivation of the human heart in darkness and sin not what we mean. We do mean this. For instance, every one of us, left in our sin apart from Christ, our, to our rebellion against God is total. Romans 3, 9-10 says it this way, Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none Zero, who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And in verse 18 he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In verse 23, all, everyone, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And secondly, therefore, in this total rebellion, Everything that we sinful creatures do is sin. And I mean everything. I mean praying. And I mean feeding the poor. A heart that is unregenerate, not born again, new life of 
Christ, the Spirit of Christ, coming back into that and raising Him spiritually from the dead. Left to ourselves, everything we do is sin. Paul was clear, whatsoever is not from the heart of faith is sin. One of my professors, Richard Muller, gave me, I think, the best example of this. The human heart is a piano that is utterly out of tune. In other words, you can go up to the piano and you can play Beethoven's, one of his sonatas, or the Moonlight Sonata, and you can play the, every key perfectly. And in time. But it won't sound right. Because the piano is out of tune. Yes, I know the earth is filled with all of us sinful people who are pretty good most of the time. We're not murdering each other, most of us. We're good neighbors. Here's some sugar you need. I understand that. God knows that. But sin, first and foremost, has to do with you as an individual and the one who made you. And sin and through the fall of Adam, it's all broken and out of tune. Thirdly, we are in this sinful state, totally dead to God. Not comatose, not sleeping, dead. All true desire. For God is God. Lights out. Ephesians 2.1, Paul said it clearly. We, before conversion to Christ, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. In Romans 8, he said it this way. The mind that is set on the flesh, apart from the work of the Spirit in your life, the mind that is set on the flesh cannot, not just will not, it cannot Submit to God or please God. And so, this state of our hearts, remember last week, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that nature and state, if we're left in it on judgment day, deserves eternal punishment. That's what Paul went on to say right there in that text in Ephesians chapter 2. We were all by nature children of wrath. Punishment. God's righteous indignation. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1 for a moment. Apostle Paul, starting with verse 6, says, Since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment 
of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So God's eternal wrath, hell, corresponds to the severity of a finite creature looking into the face of God and saying, it just does. Let me, one more thing, before I quote a few scriptures. Hell, eternal punishment, biblically, is not contrary to God's love. I didn't say He loves the person in hell. We're going to get... What do I mean? I say it this way because I, there is... And one of the reasons so many in the evangelical church that I find myself a part of will not preach a sermon like this. Especially in the seeker-sensitive movement. Don't ever mention eternal punishment or hell. Kind of be giddy. Make him feel like really, you know, entertained. I, but I think at the core is that at first glance to many people, what has been said so far seems contrary to the true love of God. But here's my contention. If we learn to put aside our unbiblical man-centered idea of what God's love is and what the Gospel is and quit reading it with this pre-philosophy of I'm at the center, this book, we would see more clearly what it's actually saying. In other words, what I mean. If we get rid of the idea that God's loving me means He makes much of me. It, he loves me? Yeah, that means He looks down at you and says, how precious! I have to do something to get that. You've all heard the sermons. You're a diamond in the rough. That's why Jesus went to the cross. God saw you in your person, in your nature, outside of Himself, over there, so valuable. you got to get it. not Bible. If we get rid of that thinking and start to see that God really loves us, and when I say it, I mean this way. He has done the... He's to the ceiling of infinity. I know those are oxymorons. He is to the ceiling of infinity of what He could possibly do for all whom He's saving in Christ. It, we understand His love is that He brings us back from the dead and causes something to happen in us that causes us to begin and then forever we'll be making much of Him. That's love. What could be greater to think, well... He must. That's awesome. Look in the mirror tomorrow. Wow, God, I, I can see why He thinks I'm so awesome. As opposed to, He so changed me by placing His very delight that He has in Himself in me so that I can taste of it. And now He's causing me to look at Him and make much of Him, of him to marvel at Him, which is the greatest possible 
joy I could have. And so God loves us by bringing us into the greatest possible joy we could have. God loves us by making us the happiest we could possibly be for the longest duration of time. Daniel 12.2 Let these sit. Whichever, if you want to keep turning, I'm going to read a few or listen. Let these texts sit upon your heart. When says that God promises that the day is coming when, quote, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Mark 9, 43-48, Jesus, the lover of our souls, said, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Mark 3.29, Jesus says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. You just note here, this rules out the doctrine that is floating around in the evangelical church again today in this world called universalism. That, yeah, maybe there's a punishment, but it's not going to go on forever. Everyone ultimately will be saved. And also of annihilationism, which says, well, eternal hell means God causes you to cease to exist. We'll see in a moment, no. Eternal souls in hell will consciously exist unendingly. It is an eternal sin, Jesus said. There is never forgiveness. Why am I doing it? Because Jesus meant His words to have impact on us. Let it. Matthew 25:41 Jesus said then the king will say to those on his left depart from me you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and to make it crystal clear and he means everlasting unending he says in verse 46 these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life just as eternal or long-lasting that the salvation of His saints is, is how long-lasting the punishment is. The Apostle of Love, the Apostle John, said in Revelation 14, 11, 
And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. He says in chapter 6, 15 and 16, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of Jesus, the Lamb. And John also said in chapter 20 of Revelation, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Oh, believer, God's wrath is just. And it is necessary in order that He display His glory and goodness and how valuable it is. And He not only displays that in mercy, He displays His glory through eternal wrath in those who remain unrepentant in their turning their nose up at Him and refuse His forgiveness. And therefore, every one of us who will find ourselves in Christ, we find it now, I hope, and on that day, we will exalt in this God, truly and happily, in His glory, forever. And thus we should rejoice in all that God does to maintain His glory, to maintain the essence of His happiness. Because that's our only hope. I just I hope we see that. God's wrath says, I protect the essence of my eternal perfections and value and worth for you whom I am saving. I'm not going to go there, but Romans 9, 10, 11, that's the core of the argument. That's Paul's understanding of the Gospel and the whole world in a nutshell. That's it. And so... Judgment and a real eternal judgment and the judgment that any of us who find ourselves loving Christ and thus are hid in Christ and His blood has covered our sin. We know He died for me. The wrath we were delivered from and the wrath that others will not be delivered from is a means of your eternal rejoicing. And we cannot taste what I just said right now like we ought, but there will be a day when we will see clearly and we will taste 
Paul uses it as a means. I quote again, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. They're both hand in glove. And to be marveled at among all who have believed. Now, I see the time. I know it's long, but too important for me. I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards for a minute. Now, sometimes people accuse me when they hear a tape from something that you're a little... Yeah, it's complex, and I, I don't want to be... I'm always trying not to be. I want, I want to be understood. I try. But this comforts me because you can hear Edwards for a moment, so just try to hang on. His poor people. But for us who live 300 years later, we're very happy he wrote sermons the way he did. And just listen to the titles first. The end of the wicked contemplated by the righteous. Or, the torments of the wicked in hell, no occasion of grief to the saints in heaven. Okay, now why? Why is Edwards doing this too? Because is there a place that we who truly find ourselves delivered from wrath in Christ and in the resurrection and for all eternity to know that there is such a thing as hell where people really are? Can you really be happy? Oh yeah. And here's Edwards' argument. The rejoicing of Christians in eternity over God's perfect acts in the punishment of the unrepentant will not be... In other words, we will rejoice. And we will rejoice that God is just. And we will rejoice that He saved me. But our rejoicing in that context over the reality of hell will not be from an ill or evil disposition. The devil delights in the misery of men from cruelty. Or Nazis delighted that way. No, this is not the joy of the saints in heaven. He says, and, from, and they delight in, from envy and revenge and because the devil delights in misery for its own sake, from a malicious disposition, he goes on, but it will be from exceedingly different principles and for quite other reasons that we Christians will rejoice in all eternity. From quite other reasons that the just damnation of the wicked will be an occasion of rejoicing in the saints in glory. It will be no argument of lack of a spirit of love in them that they do not love the damned. Let me just stop. Edward is saying, and this is the only place we can put our trust. I don't mean in Edwards, I mean in the text of Scripture. In heaven, and there are people you're trying to reach down here on earth, there will come a place in reality, and seeing clearly that you won't wake up metaphorically every morning and say, I really love that person who is eternally suffering God's wrath. It won't work that way. He argues, it will be no argument from a lack of a spirit of love in them that they do not love the damned. You won't love them. For the heavenly inhabitants will know that it is not fit that they should love them because they will know then that God has no love to them nor pity 
for them. The suffering of the wicked will be an occasion of their, the saints, rejoicing as the glory of God will appear in it. God glorifies Himself in the eternal damnation of the ungodly men. And finally, in hell, there is this reality. It will have been escapable. And now, in this world we live in, and we Christians are to know it's why we are to preach, evangelize, reach, pray. It is escapable now. There is a sense in which no one has to suffer what we have been talking about this morning. And we will see more clearly why next week. It is because God, the second person of the Trinity, became a human being. And He Himself, as a substitute, bore in His person God the Father's eternal anger and fury and wrath for all who would come to faith in Him. Come, search. And so as I close in quoting Galatians 3.13, let us hear this with fearful wonder, with faith, and ultimate joy as we prepare our hearts for communion, which will be being passed out as we sing. Hold them, we'll partake together. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. O Christ, O Jesus, You bore the curse of God's wrath for all of us who have fled for eternal refuge in You and have tasted and seen that You're good. Our ears have been opened to hear with a heart the glorious Gospel of Your substitutionary death. And we thank You. O cause repentance in every one of us now as we prepare our hearts to partake of the physical bread and the physical cup which represent this glorious substitution where wrath deserved by us was diverted upon You, O precious Savior, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus, what a precious yet terrible, rugged cross. Oh, we thank you. We thank you for upholding the glory of God for us and for your sake forever. We thank you, Jesus, that it was because of joy seeking in you that you endured the cross, despising the shame, and have sat down at the right hand of the throne of heaven and have poured out this spirit which we now sense and know personally. Oh Jesus, it is a joy to celebrate as you have commanded the last supper you shared with the apostles. And so we happily this morning will partake. We happily, as we feel the bread in our mouth, will know this represents what you went through in true humanity, bearing the wrath of Almighty God in your person. Oh Christ Jesus, oh Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the marvelous plan of saving us from your holy wrath. From eternity past, you have chosen us to be in Christ. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Oh, your mercy. Mercy in the context of wrath. Mercy buying us out of wrath is sweet. I beg you now, as we partake, let your spirit work deeply in this communion we share together. Partake of the bread. Hold the cup. Lord, you said this is the cup of your blood for us to drink it in remembrance of you. And in this veil of tears and pain and suffering and joy, down here, this is drunk with that assured hope of drinking it anew with you in the resurrection. Let us drink.